Our scripture passage for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. For the past month, we've been looking at uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, that Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom. What is it? And Jesus begins uh, Matthew chapter 5 with eight or nine qualities that teach us the character, the qualities of a person who has entered the kingdom. That's the Beatitudes, probably the most famous portion of the Sermon on the Mount. But as we go into verses 11 through 20, Jesus starts to answer how the Christian life is different when it's lived out. And you're going to notice that as Jesus gets into the practice of Christianity, you're going to see that there's distinctiveness with the world. And at the same time, Jesus shows us that Christianity is utterly different from religion. If it was just distinct from the world, Jesus would only talk about behavioral change. Um, That would be enough. Behavioral change would be enough. Do not murder. Don't commit adultery. An eye for an eye. But the Sermon on the Mount, it always goes deeper. He always goes deeper. And you're going to see that in the coming passages. And whenever Jesus talks about the Christian life, he always teaches how to get the power to live that way. In other words, Jesus is not concerned merely with behavioral modification. He's concerned about the heart. In Greek, the word radix. He's concerned about the core. He's concerned about the power that's driving you. In other words, he's not concerned with, um, you know, how you act per se. He's concerned about it, but not so much as the power that's driving you. And everywhere in the Gospels, you notice over and over the hostility that Jesus demonstrates to the religious. He says, you think they're good examples? I don't know you. You think you're a good example? I don't know you. That's what he says. Throughout the Gospels. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is welcoming the uh, sinners. He's gracious to the sinners, but he's always hostile to the religious. And at the same time, it's mainly the religious people who show hostility to what Jesus has to say. You know, the crowds, the common people, they're fascinated by Jesus. Whether they believe what he's saying or not, they're fascinated by him. But the religious people, they're always angry. They're always plotting to kill him. So one of the greatest prerequisites that we understand as you come to know Jesus, as you come to Jesus, that is, that Christianity, you see the distinctiveness not just with the world, but with religion. And one of the keys to understanding this distinctiveness with religion is to understand the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to see three points today. It's a bit more convoluted today, but we're going to see three points. One, the practice. Two, the possibility or the impossibility. And three, the power uh, of, of Uh, the gospel, the practice of the gospel or how we should live, the possibility or the impossibility, why we can't live that way, and thirdly, then the power. What's the power that allows us, that drives us to live that way? The practice, the power, uh, sorry, the practice, the impossibility, and the power. First, 
the practice. We think, we tend to think that the Sermon on the Mount means this, that you've got two choices. You either live obeying God's law or you live disobeying God's laws. But if you look at any of the following passages in the Sermon on the Mount, they're like in these small, discrete chunks, right? And you'll see that it's kind of highlighted with uh, subtitles, you know, throughout the chapter. If you see any one of these individual uh, teachings, Jesus doesn't merely address people who obey and people who don't obey. That's not what he does. That's not what you see here. What you actually see him addressing is people who just comply morally and people who truly obey. Moral compliance, moral goodness versus real, true obedience. The Sermon on the Mount actually contrasts two ways of looking at the same thing. He doesn't say, you know, um, here are people who don't live the way I, I ask you to live and here are people who do. That's not what he does. He actually shows you two ways, contrasting ways of looking at the same thing, looking at obedience. And that's scary. It's scary because Jesus isn't contrasting people, again, who obey and people who don't. You know, for example, he, doesn't say, he says, do not murder. Do not murder. In verses 21 to 22, as you move into the next section, you know, he says, do not murder. On one hand, he affirms it. He says, you've heard that it was said, do not murder. But then he says, but I say, don't even hate. That's remarkable. You know, in other words, he says, you know, there are people who follow the law and they keep it this way. But I say, what it really means is to keep it this way. Two different people who are, both of them are obedient. Not, you know, this is bad and this is good, but two types of good people. How do you make sense of that? He says, you know, both people don't murder. Both people give. Both people pray. But one of them is poisonous. One of them is headed towards destruction. That's what he says. On one hand, you know, verses 18 to 19, he says, those who keep the least of my commandments will be called least in the kingdom. Those who keep the greatest of the commandments will, keep, will be called greatest in the kingdom. Both groups enter into the kingdom. But, verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, basically what he's saying is this. You know, if you keep the least of them or the greatest of them, you'll be called least or the greatest, but you're still in the kingdom. But unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, unless you're greater than the Pharisees, the Pharisees, what he's saying is the the religious, they don't enter the kingdom at all. That's remarkable what he's saying there. The religious people don't enter the kingdom at all. Christianity surpasses, it's totally different from religion. So you can't mistake Christianity for religion at all. That's going to lead you to destruction. That's the scary part. You know, people say, you know, I thought Christianity was, you know, live according to what the Bible tells you to live. Oh, man, that's really hard. I really try hard to do that. But, you know, I have to live in a way that pleases God, right? That's what Christianity is, right? And the answer is partly, but no. No. The previous passage, last week, we saw different people, uh, a difference between um, people who have a light and they hide it under a bowl and people who put it on a stand, you know, lights up the whole house, we said. You know, Jesus says, some people, they keep the light. They, they keep the light to themselves. And as a result, the light's in a bowl. It just lights their own way. And they feel, as a result, they feel brighter. You know, and yet the reality is they're still in the darkness. The light's in a bowl. It doesn't light anything for you. They still don't know where they're going. They feel brighter. 
you know, the light hasn't changed you. The light hasn't reoriented your life. You haven't changed or shaped your life according to the light itself. You know, you feel attractive, but actually you're not attractive to other people. Christians, on the other hand, they're attractive to other people. You know, Christians, you know, they're attractive to people who disagree with them. Christians are attractive to people who have a different lifestyle than them. Their light is beautiful, you see. And, you know, he says salt, it's not just a preservative, it also enhances the flavor of any meal. It just goes in, it goes into the place. On one hand, it goes into decay. You know, the religious people, they say, it's decaying, I don't want to get near that, I'm going to stay away from that. Christians go into the decay, that's what salt does, it preserves. But on the other hand, it enhances, he says. It brightens, it livens the flavor. People look at you and they say, what a great community. What a refreshing time that I've had with this community. The religious, they only light themselves. Christians light the whole house. They light up the whole city. If the gospel is in you, then your goodness comes without superiority. It makes you attractive. Religious people say, what's wrong with these people? Christianity, Christians say, I want to enter in to those people. Now, verses 17 through 20, that's what, we're, that's what we've come to. It seems kind of harsh. You know, basically what he's saying is, I don't want you to think that I don't care about how you live. That's pretty much what he's saying. You know, all this talk about grace, it really doesn't matter how you live. As long as you have some sort of relationship with me, as long as it's kind of good and you feel good about it, you know, so the Sermon on the Mount, it's really just a set of guidelines and teachings and good ideas and proposals, maybe some recommendations I want to negotiate with you to enhance your life, to improve your life. You know, that's not what he says. That's not what Jesus is saying. He says, anyone who does even the least of these will be called least in the kingdom. Anyone who does the greatest of these is considered greatest in the kingdom. But then he says, you need, all of you need a righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees, the religious. In other words, the law, it actually does matter. I do care how you live. That's what he's saying. I do care about your integrity. I do care about your faithfulness. I do care if you're overworking yourself because you're just trying to get ahead in life and that's what you're driven by. I do care how you control yourself. I do care about how you deal with other people around you, how you deal with your your community. I have not come to abolish the law, he says. I do care about the law. I do care about how you live. How you live actually matters. Now, that's the first point. How you live. You know, the practice But the second point, he says, uh, you know, now it's the impossibility of that. If you were a person at that moment listening to Jesus at the sermon, you know, on the mountainside, Jesus is teaching. There's two types of people. There are religious people like the Pharisees, who he's really, you know, kind of targeting here, it seems. But there's also people who are irreligious, people like the tax collectors. And if, you know, the Pharisees, they live like monks, they're kind of like modern day, in some ways, kind of like the Amish. They've kind of separated themselves became their own enclave in society. And although they're in the community, they've really learned to live very, very tightly ordered lives together as one community. They managed and watched everything that they said, everything that they did, everything that they wore, everything that they ate, they con- how they conducted themselves in community, you know, even down to how they obeyed their rest, the Sabbath. And they pursued righteousness, their order of righteousness. We have the Ten Commandments. These Pharisees have taken the Ten Commandments and distilled them They basically derived a systematic set of 635 laws that they kept every day, all day, even on their day of rest. Positive and negative laws that they were going to keep all day. 
And yet, Jesus says, you need a righteousness that surpasses that. Greater than the Pharisees. People would say, if anybody would sit there would say, how in the world do you expect us to live like that? I don't even know what that looks like. If you were a tax collector in that day, listening, the tax collector, the best way to describe a tax collector, if you've heard anything about tax, it's not like today, oh, I'm afraid of the IRS. That's not what we're talking about. A modern, a, a, an ancient tax collector in the Roman times, was cons- you would consider them like a modern-day drug dealer. They were despised by their own people because they lived pretty much consuming their own people, cheating their people. And they lived among, you know, as a result, they lived very, very uh, different types of lifestyles, uh, and people looked down on them. People despised them. If you were a tax collector in that day, you would say, well, as, I, as you hear Jesus now going through his discourse, the Beatitudes, the character of someone who enters the kingdom, and all the lifestyle that kind of you know, follows from that, if you were a tax collector in that day, you would say, how in the world? I haven't lived that way, and I can't live that way. You know, as I am right now, I, I can't live that way. How can I ever be considered to be a part of the kingdom? If you were a Pharisee in hell, you'd think differently. You've lived and obeyed 635 systematic laws that have been derived to obey God's word. And you just heard Jesus say, you need a righteousness that surpasses that. You're thinking, I have obeyed the law. How can anyone have a righteousness that surpasses me? How can anyone live more ordered than us, more righteous, more acceptable, have more honor and integrity than us? I mean, think about it. Let's be honest here. If you had to choose between a drug dealer and a very, very upright moral person, who would you choose as your neighbor? These Pharisees are thinking about it. How can, how can anyone have a righteousness that surpasses this, have more order than this? And that's the point. Jesus is affirming the outer life. Verse 17, I have not come to abolish the law. I affirm the law. But he's addressing your inner life. He's addressing your inner core. No one in the world has that kind of inner life. Jesus says, you know, it doesn't just matter what kind of outer life you live. I'm concerned about what's at the core, what's powering you, what's driving you. The law of God doesn't just demand you to live right, a morally acceptable life, and a life of external compliance. That's not what the, that's not what the law is about. God requires a purity of your inner motives as well. That's actually what's going to drive the purity of your outer life. He wants you to have motives that are going to drive you to live that outer life. You, have a, you need to have a center. He's looking at your center. And he goes down the line, starting with verses 21 to 22, and he's explaining it in his teachings. He starts with murder and hate. Throughout the text, you see, throughout the text, you hear him say, you've heard it said. You know, later on in the text, as you see, every section starts with, you've heard it was said. Jesus is affirming the law. But then he says, but I tell you. You know, he says, I say this. You know, you've heard this. Obey this. But then he says, but I tell you this. It's the same law, but he's going deeper. He's going deeper to the center. He says, you know, you heard it was said, do not murder, but I tell you this. What he means then is this, you know, do not murder. I'm telling you, don't murder. But if you even hate somebody, 
If you even consider them unworthy to be your friend because you look at them and they're just foolish people, foolish to the core, they're going to mess up your life. If you're around them, your life becomes foolish. It considers, you consider them just empty, empty souls and as a result, just unacceptable. They, have, they will not live up to your standards. They're unacceptable and you despise them. We could, you could be talking about your spouse here even. It doesn't even. That's not just someone on the outside. It could be some, your child, your spouse. He says, that is the same as murder. When you murder in your heart, you know what you're doing? You're despising. The greatest act of despising someone is murder. That's what he's saying. He's saying that's your heart, deep to the core. The Buddha, Muhammad, they never go this deep. You know, the five pillars of Islam, the eightfold path, they never go this deep. Every one of those uh, phrases in the five pillars of Islam or in the Eightfold Path, it's all outside in. Religion is outside in. I have to be good on the outside and that determines then how I feel and who I am on the inside. But Jesus says that is religion. You have to surpass that. You have to get above that. You have to get beyond that. Religion is outside in. Not very, very deep. The gospel is at the core. The gospel is at the core. It's inside out. And the result is this. The religious... They do things out of fear. They obey out of fear or pride. They're the two lenses, you know, that's the backbone of how religious people live, out of fear and pride. Think about it. Some people here, you know, in the world, they have a problem with lying, lying in community, you know, in their community. They're they're always, you know, paranoid and they're trying to cover their tracks, so they're lying to other people. Why do we lie? Anyway, why do we lie? One reason why we lie is fear. We don't want people to find out the truth about who we are. You know, so we're afraid of that. So we're constantly trying to cover over that with other lies. But the other reason why we lie is out of pride. If I can just figure this out, and if I can just lie the right way, that's how I get what I want. That's how I get in and get what I want. You're going to get something out of it by lying. That's what you have to do. But if you think about it, even if you're good, even if you're morally righteous, even if you're religious, and you tell the truth. If you tell the truth with just a religious heart, a morally just right, you just want to be morally right, morally acceptable, you're still doing it out of fear and pride too. You're doing it out of fear. You know, I don't want to lie because, you know, God might do something bad to me if I lie. So I have to stay straight. I have to tell the truth. Or pride. Those people over there lie. I'm not like that. I'm better than that. So whether you're lying because you're irreligious, out of irreligiosity, not a sense of God in your life, or whether you tell the truth because you have some, some, some sort of a sense of God in your life, both sides lie or don't lie out of fear and pride. It all comes from the same heart. What's the difference, you know? Because at the core, whether you're lying out of selfishness or telling the truth just out of good, you know, with good intentions, you know, both sides are trying to get leverage. Both sides are trying to get something out of it. Both sides are, are um, driven by fear and pride. And the normal response here is, wow, that's really hard. You're going beyond the realm. You know, I haven't really thought about this. That's really, really hard. I can't do that, you know. Jesus is not just talking about the rules, you know. You notice this because he says, the law and the prophets, he says, you know, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
He starts out with the law. He says he's basically referring to the pattern of the whole Bible by referring to the law and the prophets, the whole span of the Bible. He says, you know, on one hand, there's the law. You've got to obey the law. But the prophets, now you're bringing into context, you know, stories, narratives, history. It's a whole string, you know, of man's relationship with God, the prophets. You're talking about people like Abraham and Moses, Esther and David. And you have these amazing stories, these narratives, these true narratives, these displays and acts of obedience and courage and faith. And if you read it, on one hand, you know, you could be really inspired, and you could be inspired, but if you think about it, you know, um, and Jesus is trying to get us to think about it, it's actually crushing. Because who could live like that, right? Who can have the faith that Abraham had? Who can have the courage that Esther had? You know, here's how you do it, but I can't do it. Here's how you're called to live, but I can't live that way. And Jesus, here's the third point. Through Jesus and in Jesus, you can. We talked about the practice of it. Here's how you live. I care about the law. I care that you obey the law. The second part, he says, it's the impossibility or the possibility of it. You know, it sounds, it's remarkable what he's calling us to do because it's not just about outward goodness, external compliance. He wants us to go in to the core of, and see what's actually driving us, you know? And you, and you start to say, you know what? He's not just concerned about the outside, but the inner, what's driving you. And if it's out of fear and pride, you say, wow, how can I get out of that? How can I get out of that insecurity? In and through Jesus, you can. Where's the power? You need the previous points to really sink in. You need to see the demand of the law to obey the law. You need to see how impossible it is to do it on your own. But in order for this third point to be effective, you need to see those two. Verse 17, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, what he's saying is, I didn't come to tell you that you're free from obedience at all. I still want you to obey the law. But Jesus never says, if you live like this, God will love you. If you live like this, God will be your father. That's not what he says. He says the only way that you're going to be able to live without hate, the only way that you're going to live with purity, the only way that you're going to have integrity, real integrity, the only way that you're going to be able to stand up, you know, to, you know, this is what I said and this is what I mean and this is how I'm going to live. The only way that you're going to really love somebody is if you really know and trust and believe that God is your father that God loves you. Take anxiety. You know, I'm, that's, a, that's an easy one for me. I can tell you about all the ways that I worry about things. My worry has so many layers and dimensions, you know, as maybe some of you, you know, take, take anxiety. You know, simply put, you know, you're not supposed to worry because Jesus says, do not worry. And he goes into this whole thing, take the lilies, see the lilies of the field, the, you know, the birds in the air, you know, they don't worry about a single thing. They go throughout the day. They're always provided for. Take worry. You know, you shouldn't worry. And you say, you know, I do worry, but I shouldn't worry. How do you not worry? How do you not worry? It's impossible. It's impossible on your own. Religion says, just obey. Stop worrying. That's going to make you stop. Stop worrying because if you worry, you're not going to be valued by God. That's only going to make you worry more. That's only going to make you more neurotic. You're going to get neurotic about worrying. You know, it's going to make you work harder. It's going to make you want to control things even more. You see that? Only the gospel tells you that if you really believe that God loves you, that the Father loves you, that he holds you in his heart, 
and that he was willing to sacrifice his own son as a provision for you, do you not believe that he would provide for you all things? The basis of it is, do you really believe that God loves you, that God is your father? Religion says obey to get value. Gospel says you obey because you're valued. You live out of the incredible knowledge that you are valued by God, and you have to let that truth, that knowledge drive you. Love drives you. You obey God as a father, not your boss. You obey God as a, a father, not as a preacher. A father, not as your boss. You know, if, you're, if you have a father, you make mistakes, he may discipline you, but he'll always be your father. If you have a boss and you make mistakes, you, he may no longer be your boss because you may not have a job. If you have a father and you make mistakes, the discipline never comes without an embrace. And that's why at the end, even the discipline becomes sweet. But if you have a boss, you know, there's no, the discipline's never going to come with an embrace. And that's going to make you bitter. It's going to make you resentful. It's going to make you worry. It's going to make you feel insecure. You're never going to know where you stand. You see that? How do you, how do you love someone? How do you love someone? Well, you find out what pleases that person, and you do it. That's how you love somebody. Very simple. How do you love God? Well, you find out what pleases God, and you do it. What pleases God? God says, the law pleases me. You will, you know, Exodus chapter 19, if you follow these commands, then out of all the nations of the world, you will be treasured by me. He doesn't say, if you follow my commands, I will save you. You will be rescued by me. That's not what he says. He says, if you follow my commands, you will be treasured by me. You will be my treasured possession. The Ten Commandments really represents the character of who God is. It's the sum of his whole character. And Jesus, he doesn't say, he loves God too much to say, so forget about the law. That's not what he's saying. He says, I want you to love your father. I want you to become like your father. If the Bible says, you know, forgive, but you don't do it, you know why you can't forgive? You just have a struggle, you just struggle to, you know, and so you're going to murder. You know, you're going to despise this person. You don't do it. It's because there's a design flaw. There's a flaw in your design, your makeup. You know, you know last several weeks, we've had snowstorms, lots of snowstorms. We're about to head into another one, right? If you don't know, you know, we're about to head into another one. So there's a, lots of snowstorms. And in, in, in my neighborhood, um, there's a design flaw in certain homes, and when the temperature drops just below a certain temperature, um, they were not designed so that things would freeze in the house. But the flaw in the design, you know, in, in between the floors of the home, if there's a design flaw, your pipes, which were not designed to freeze, will freeze. So various people in my neighborhood, you know, went without showers, you know, for a day or two. Various people in our, ho- in our neighborhood you know, went without hot water, or any water for that matter. I worked from home, you know, for those two days. I had no shower, you know, and no running water. You know, and you don't realize how much your life is disrupted, even by that one flaw, even by that one flaw, breakdown results. You know, um, you're no longer cleanly shaved. You know, little basic things. You're thirsty, (laughs) you know. You have to go to the bathroom. Lots of things break down results if the design is violated. You know, and if, you know, you look at it and you say, was it meant to be this way? And they say, well, I look at the architectural plan. No, it wasn't really meant to be that way. There's a breakdown that results because the design is flawed. If you fail to be what you were designed to be, hate, for example, resentment starts to set in. And as a result, it's going to damage you. It's going to damage your family. It's going to damage your community. 
And if enough people do that all together, it's going to damage society. You see how that works? Flaw in the design. How do we know that God then is our Father? What's the assurance? What's the power? That's the heart of being a Christian. You know, not being sure, that's the heart of religion. That's why we work so hard in religion. That's why we're not joyful. That's why we're resentful and bitter. And when God doesn't answer our prayers, we're upset and we're angry because he owes me. What we're really saying is, you owe me because I obeyed you. You ever see Amadeus? The movie Amadeus, early 80s, won many Academy Awards, including Best Picture, one of my favorite movies. You know, Salieri. He says, I have devoted my life to the church, basically. I've devoted my life to just good practice, living right. And this guy, Mozart, you know, he says, I just want to devote myself to music and charity. And he says, you know, Lord, if you just, if you just make me, if you lift me up in front of my people, then I will just write songs for you, devoted to you, praising you, glorying you. But then Mozart came. This guy who just showed up. He lives a debaucherous lifestyle. He is so impure. He lacks integrity. And he's this guy who runs around. And he's just so vile and so despisable. And yet he's got this amazing gift. And everybody adores him because of his gift. And later on he says, now I will block you. I will despise you. You are my enemy. None of us, the reason why these movies work is because none of us ever, you know, does that to God. But we feel it. We do that by running from him. We do that by distancing ourselves from him. We do that by saying, you know what, what's the point of praying? What's the point of reading the Bible? It doesn't work for me. God doesn't listen to me. Whether you believe in God or not, not being sure, there's always that insecurity. That's the heart of religion. But the heart of being a Christian, what's the assurance? You know, we read this text and we say, wow, that's hard. The rules are hard. What we're really saying is, you know, Donnie, based on what you're saying, man, I can't do that. What you're saying is, I have a very high view of the law. I have a very, very high view of the law, and I can't live that way. You know, it's beyond me. It's too high. And Jesus says, you're right. And you know what? My view of the law is that much higher than yours. It's even higher than that. It's even more impossible than that. You know, most of here, we look at things, we, we have two views of religion. You know, the first view of religion is God loves everybody, so we just need to, the Bible's basically just saying, just do your best, you know? Is that going to give you security? Are you going to feel assured that, oh, God loves us all, just do your best? Does that give you security? You know, because the Bible doesn't really say that. It doesn't say that really. The second view is the traditional view of religion. Here are the rules, do it. If you do it, you're going to feel assurance. Now, sometimes you might feel assured if you do that, but you're going to pay a price if you don't. You're going to be guilty. You're going to beat yourself up. You're going to beat other people up when they feel, fail. You're going to lose assurance every single time. You can't make it. And most of the time, we can't make it. It's conditional. So neither views are going to give you security. Both views are going to be insecure, make you feel insecure. Jesus says, obey. But I have come to fulfill the law. I have come to fulfill the law. What does that mean? Every instance of the law, you have two choices. You'll have two choices with every instance of the law. Take a stop sign or a stoplight, red light, pull up. Now, if you're like me, two in the morning, you know, driving through Fort Washington, Skipback Pike, you know, you get to a stoplight. Some of those stoplights are like a minute long. It's two in the morning. I'm cold. I'm hungry. I'm tired. I get to a stoplight. I look to my right and left. There is not a single person awake in all of Fort Washington at two in the morning. 
They go to bed at like 9:30. Okay, Super Bowl, you know, fourth quarter, incredibly tired. They're already yawning. You know, oh, these are repeats of the you know commercials. They're ready to go to sleep. As soon as Super Bowl ends, click or clap off. I don't know, right? They're going to go to sleep, right? Now, you get to a red light. You look to your right and left. You have two choices. I can obey the law, and if you obey the law, there's no penalty. Or I can disregard the law, and if I get caught, you know, I mean, at two o'clock in the morning, I don't know why a, a single cop in Fort Washington would ever be out there. I mean, what crime happens in Fort Washington? It's like, you know, you forgot to return your library book or something like that, right? But you're sitting here, and you know, at two in the morning, a cop just happens to be out there, you know, and and he he pulls you over. You either obey the law, and there's no condemnation as a result, or You violated the law, and you pay a fine, and paying the price relieves you. The, the The power of the law has no penalizing effect in your life as a result. You either pay the fine if you violate it, or you obey the law. Those are your two options. You know, either you obey or you pay. You know what the gospel is? The gospel is good news, because Jesus has come to fulfill the law. The law of God is summed up as a life of complete love and justice and integrity and purity and peace. And Jesus came in our place to fulfill, you know, the law. He fulfilled the law, and he does it in two ways. First, he obeys the law by fulfilling all of its components, all the written components. So, not just the Ten Commandments. Right, the positives, the negatives, all the law, right? But the story itself, throughout the story, you know, Abraham and Moses and David and Esther. We mention those guys, and we say, "Wow!" If we just look at them as examples, we'd be crushed by that. But if you really think about it, they had tremendous flaws. They weren't even good examples themselves. But Jesus came, and He fulfilled what they all failed. He fulfilled it to the T. Completely fulfilled the law. Completely fulfilled all the exemplars, all the examples. Everything to the T, you know. He's the ultimate faithful one. He's the ultimate redeemer. He's the ultimate king. He's the ultimate beautiful king that has displayed courage for his people. But that's not all he does. He doesn't just fulfill the law by obedience. He fulfills the law by paying the price. He also pays for the violation. This is very important to see. You know, if he only paid the price for you, you know, then. He saved you. He rescued you, and there's really no power to obey. It's up to you to really obey. You know that old phrase. You know the traditional religious old phrase. You know Jesus gave His life for me. Now it's up to me to live my life for Him. You know that's a very very old phrase that we often say. If you've heard that before, but you know really it's not true. If Jesus paid the price for you, that means you're no longer condemned. Absolutely true. But he also fulfills the law by living the life that you should have lived. He lived it perfectly to the T. That's the power, the blessings of salvation and sonship that's been given and earned by Jesus for you. When you believe in Jesus, that is, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? You not only believe in what He's done for you on the cross, you have to believe everything that He is for you as well, who He is, His person, and His work. Because if you believe who he is for you and his work for you, then that means you receive forgiveness on one hand. You're cleared of all the penalties, all the charges that have been made against you. 
and you receive the regard of God that was due to someone who's been perfectly obedient to God. God's spirit has come into you. God's spirit moves into you. You have a new heart. You have a new spirit that empowers you. That's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, really. They both fail. They're both incredibly flawed. The difference between someone who believes in Jesus and someone who doesn't is that a believer has a new heart that powers him. New spirit, new heart. It's printed in your call to worship, right? Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law. He's the only one who ever fulfilled the law. No one ever lived like Jesus. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, walk through the Beatitudes, Jesus fulfilled all of them. Jesus is meek. Jesus is meek. The meek shall inherit the earth, but he didn't inherit the earth. He lost the inheritance. Jesus hungered and thirsted for righteousness, after righteousness. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness should be filled, but Jesus didn't, he wasn't filled. He hungered on the cross. He said, God, where are you? I thirst. He did that for you. Philippians chapter 2, Jesus had the glory. He was equal with the Father, and yet he made himself a nobody. He emptied himself for you. Jesus is the merciful one. Those who are merciful are shown mercy, but he was not shown mercy on the cross. In fact, he was forsaken on the cross. He didn't receive mercy. Jesus is is pure in heart. Jesus is pure. Jesus says, you know, it says the pure in heart will see God. Jesus says, my God, my God, you've forsaken me. I don't see you. You've turned your face away from me. Why did he do that? Why did Jesus do that? Jesus lost the inheritance so you would gain in the inheritance. That's what makes you meek. That's why you can be meek. That's why you can obey. The power of Christ is in you. Jesus hungered and thirsted and emptied himself. Why? So that you could be filled. You could be filled with righteousness. That means that you have the power to pursue righteousness in Christ. Jesus was disowned. Jesus was forsaken by God. Why? So that you could be called sons of God. That's what allows you to bring peace. That's why he says you can be a peacemaker now. The power of Christ is in you. Jesus is the surpassing righteousness that became sin for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God so that through his righteousness we can be accepted. We can be in because Jesus was rejected. Jesus was cast out. Isaiah chapter 53. He was not among the land of the living. He was cut off. Why? So that we could be in. In every way, Jesus fulfilled the Sermon on the Mount. That's the surpassing righteousness we need. We need Jesus. He's the righteousness we need. Verse 19, you love the law, you've got to obey the law. But if you're religious, the Bible, the law, the word of God, it's a scary thing for you. And if you're irreligious, the Bible, the law, the word of God, it's irrelevant for you. But the gospel, the word of God is relevant, and yet it's not scary. It's delightful. It's delightful all the time. This amazing hymn. You know, there are hymns that I look at today. You know, sometimes I read through hymnals. Amazing hymns that you read through. That you like, I never read this when I was a child. I never sang this when I was a child. John Newton wrote, We Were Sinners Once As You Are. An amazing hymn. Very few churches actually sing it, but everybody quotes it. You know, beautiful lyrics. I'm going to read you towards the end of this hymn. It's got like eight or nine verses. I'm going to read you towards the end. Our pleasure and our duty. 
though opposite before. Since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. You know what he's saying? He's saying before pleasure, the thrill of life, and the duty of being in Christ, they were separate for me. You know, because duty was driven by fear or was driven by pride, and it always made me resentful. There was no pleasure. There was no joy in that. But when you come to know that Jesus fulfilled the law and he paid the penalty on our behalf, he pardoned our sins, that melts us, and it turns our duty into choice. That's the pleasure. Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of mockers, But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on this law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. Whatever he does prospers. Christians forget often that Jesus fulfilled the law. And so, you know, what we do is we let the law sit on our throne. We let the law control us. And that makes duty, duty. Right? You know, and, you know, it leads us to kill and despair and when, we, and when we fail or it makes us and it feeds our ego when we succeed and we, can, we become very arrogant. But Jesus fulfilled the law, you know, and that way his righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. You know, some of us, we don't want that. We say, you know, I want to believe that my hard work counted for something at least. I want to believe that, you know, you know, it did something for my acceptance to the Father. We want to say, I earned it. I worked for it. I succeeded. There's this longing in our hearts, you know, God, see me, look at me, Love me because of what I did. That's the cancer that's killing us. That's the cancer that's destroying us every day. If your law is something for you to do, then your response to grace is rejection of the law in many ways, you know? Because if you're just looking for what to do, then grace, you're allergic to grace. You know, because relying on yourself is, you know, relying on something greater than your merit, you don't want to do that. But if your response to the law is initial despair, I haven't lived up to it, I failed to live up to it, then your response to grace is gratitude. Gratitude. Because it's, you know, you, you know, your love for God, your love for Jesus, you know, relying on Christ's merit is greater. His record is greater than your record. If you trust yourself more, then your moral goodness is going to lead you to a roller coaster, a failure and success, you know, a fear and ego and arrogance. Do you see that? But if you trust Jesus more, then you're going to fulfill the law more. Why? Because at the heart, this is very important, you're humble because you didn't deserve what Jesus did for you. And yet you're so confident. You know by looking at what Jesus did, he did it for you, and that gives you the assurance of God's love. So you're not afraid. You're not afraid to try, and you're not going to run if you fail, you know, and you're not arrogant when you're successful. There's this amazing confidence built in with humility, and it's intermingled, it's interwoven into your soul, and that produces joy. You know what else it does? It makes other people joyful around you because you become very, very attractive. Legalistic obedience, if I'm good, then God's going to answer my prayers. He's going to love me. He's going to accept me. I get to go to heaven. But it stops making sense because sometimes God doesn't answer your prayers, and then you become bitter because your prayers haven't been answered. I deserve this. How come you don't look at me anymore? The gospel speaks and sings of unconditional love, and it makes you humble. 
It makes you incredibly humble. And that's why you're like salt. Salt is very, very inexpensive. It makes you humble. But it also makes you beautiful, like light in darkness. This week, tonight, where you are in your context, as you enter back into the decay, as you enter into darkness, will you, will you love Jesus more? Love his righteousness more? Love his grace more? If you love his righteousness more, it's because the more, everywhere you failed, you know, you love his righteousness more. And everywhere you succeeded, you love his righteousness more. And everywhere you failed, Jesus' blood covers over your sin. And everywhere you succeeded, Jesus' blood covers over even that. Do you believe that? It is the difference between security and insecurity, assurance and insecurity, amazing confidence and humility versus fear and arrogance. That's the difference. Two different lifestyles. Both people trying to be good. Which one are you? Let's pray.